Well, good morning. We are, by the way, isn't this incredible? Dale and his team did a phenomenal job. We're starting a new series uh, this week called Gifts, and we're going to be spending five weeks during this Christmas season talking about um, the gifts that we have as a result of Jesus Christ coming to earth. And I think it's kind of appropriate because we sort of all have gifts and giving on the, on the mind this time of year. And I think one of the challenges about that is because of sort of the way that we go about gift giving, um, eventually we can start to get sort of tied up in the in the the gifts we can see and touch and hold um, and, and show off. And, and sometimes as a result of that, we can sort of begin to look down on the intangible uh, gifts. I, I recall when I was nine or 10, I had a friend uh, and, and we, our birthdays were pretty close together and we used to do what nine and 10 year olds do whenever the birthday time would come around. We'd talk about all the gifts that we'd gotten and we'd compare notes and see who got the better gifts. And, and uh, his, his grandpa, as a matter of fact, always gave him really cool uh, gifts. And I, re- I recall, I, b- I believe we had both just turned 10, and, and I asked him, I said, so what'd your grandpa get you for your birthday? And he said, ah, he just got me some stock, you know. <laughs> and you'd have to have known me when I was 10 to know why, I, you'd have to know what my personality was like that I would ask such a question, but I was like, oh yeah, what's the stock in? <laughs> I'm a 10-year-old, right? But I want to know what company the stock is in. It's important to me, right? And, and he says, uh, oh, it's an old phone company, AT&T, you know. I don't know why my grandpa wanted to give me stock in an old phone company. I wanted an electric guitar, you know. <laughs> well, I, um, I did a little search yesterday evening before I came out and gave the first talk, because I was interested to see what his AT&T stock was, was, uh, was doing, you know, after, what is it, 20 years. Wanted to see how, how he had fared, and seems to me, given where his stock has gone, he told me how many shares his grandpa had given him, I, I think he could have probably bought half of the Guitar Center catalog right about now if he wanted to sell it. But he didn't recognize, as a 10-year-old, he didn't recognize what that piece of paper that he had represented and what, what it was actually worth to him because it was intangible. It wasn't like the electric guitar he wanted. It wasn't something he could take out and play with and look at and show off to everybody else. And yet, he had something that was more valuable than I think probably any of the rest of us could have imagined. And one of the things that we're talking about as we start this gift series is when Jesus Christ came to earth, he gave us some gifts that are intangible. But those gifts are huge. And if we ignore them, we can miss the fact that we have something very special. And that's what we're going to be talking about as we spend these weeks together. And it falls uh, my privilege to get to talk to you about the intangible gift of joy. I don't know if you, if, you, if you read through the Christmas story, you'll see Joy mentioned several times. We're going to talk here today about one of the times that we see uh, Joy mentioned. But it is something we talk a lot about at Christmas time. And so I decided, you know, what I wanted to do is do a little field research. So I decided to go out and try to figure out what the concept of Joy was. So I went to the Black Friday sales. <laughs> I learned some stuff, not about Joy, but I definitely learned some stuff, you know. It's interesting, isn't it, that this time of year, when the word joy is used as frequently as it is, that it seems like joy is in a very short supply, doesn't it? It seems almost as though at this time of year, there's almost more issues that take away our joy than there are things that bring joy to us. So I want to talk to us uh, today about how we can have joy, the importance of joy, and what the opposite is, and what we could experience if we're not careful this Christmas. But what, what I want to do is I want to talk to you about how people react 
differently. By the way, you do know people react differently to the same news. Have you ever noticed that? You have two people looking at the same news and react differently. For instance, right, right about now, the Hallmark Channel is going to come on and it's going to have a commercial about however many days of Christmas they have and all the Christmas movies that, that they put on, right? My wife and I react differently to that news. I'm sitting there thinking, how am I going to live through this? And my wife's thinking, it's the most wonderful time of the... Anyway, <laughs> people react differently to news, right? And on a, serious, on a serious level, people react differently to the news of Christmas, don't they? The news of Jesus coming to earth, that doesn't always strike the same chord with people. And, and even back when Jesus was born, it didn't strike the same chord with people. And that's what I want to talk to you about. I get to talk to you about two of my favorite characters in all of the Christmas story, in some, you know, in some ways, these are the characters we know the least about, but I want to talk to you about them. And we're going we're gonna to unpack the story, and we're going to talk about what it teaches us about joy. So you have to hang in there for, with me for a little bit. We're going to unpack some truths. We're going to talk about some characters in the Christmas story, and, and then we're going to draw some conclusions. What I want to do is talk to you about Herod uh, and the wise men. And, 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 and really... Um, Oh, let me, just, let me just start by reading the story here. We're going to go to Matthew 2. Here's the story, starting in verse 1. Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. Now, King Herod was deeply disturbed, and we're going to come back there in a minute, was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time the star had first appeared. Then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child, and when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. Have you ever wondered, who are these wise men? I mean, who are these people? They show up kind of in the middle of the Christmas story, but we don't get a whole lot of background about it in the Bible. By the way, uh, if, if, if you ever want to score well in Bible trivia, I don't even know if anybody plays that game anymore. But if you want to score well in Bible trivia, you should know if the question is ever asked, were the wise men there at, at, at the nativity scene in the, in, the, in the barn with the manger? The answer is no. Sorry, don't, please don't go home and take them out of your nativity scene. It's really okay. But... But, but they weren't there. We, 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 we can easily tell from the scriptures that, uh, that Jesus was older at this point in time. Uh, the, they, the, the Bible tells us they went to the house where the child was. And then we have some other things in the scriptures that make it very clear that this was not at the time of, this was not the night of Jesus' birth. But who were these guys? I mean, where did they come from and what was their deal? You know, why were they looking for Jesus? You know, a lot of times we've heard the Christmas story so many times, we just sort of take these things for granted, but we don't think about why was this happening? So let me talk to you a little bit about wise men and what it, what it was. If you, what it, what it, uh, these people were from the Orient. Let me tell you what, what you had to have on your application if you wanted to be a wise man, right? Here's the deal. In order to be a wise man, you had to have mastered all of the mathematical, the scientific, political and historical um, knowledge bases that any wise man was expected to have. Basically, you needed to know more than anybody else about everything. I mean, you, you, you had to have the answers for any question. I mean, th- this was not a time when, when math and science was something the average person was concerned with, but it was these people's business to be concerned with the, the really difficult questions that nobody had answers to, right? These were the guys who were walking around who had three PhDs, you know? They, they, they knew everything, and everybody looked up to them as the, the people that had all the answers. And on top of that, not only were they smart, but they were powerful and they were influential. See, nothing in the Orient happened without these guys that say so. You couldn't do anything without their stamp of approval. In fact, nobody got to sit on the throne, nobody got to be king unless they said they could. 
These were really the, the king makers of their time. These were the guys who got to decide who would rule their people. So they were powerful, they were influential, you had to have, you, you had to understand politics, you had to understand math and science and politics. On top of all that though, even if you had all those qualities, you still had to be elected by all the other wise men. They were a panel really, and you had, you had to have their say so to get in. So you could be smart, but if you weren't popular, you didn't get in, right? So these, are, these were an elite group of people, right? These were the best of the best. So why, I don't know if this is starting to pop up or bubble up in your mind, but why would people who are that smart, that intelligent, that powerful, that influential, that looked up to, why would they take off on a long journey to go find the king of the Jews, which is not even their people group? What, what would cause them to be interested in taking this journey? Can I tell you, I, th I think it's a complex thing, but I think we can see it if we look at all these things in historical context. See, like the rest of us, I think the wise men knew <laughs> that at the end of knowledge, and see, that many, many of you in this room are highly educated, and you could vouch for this. At the end of knowledge, there are always dead ends. You can learn and learn and learn and learn and learn and learn, but eventually you're gonna hit a wall because knowledge will only take you so far. And power and influence will only take you so far no matter how powerful you get. There's always an Achilles heel. There's always a weakness somewhere, always weakness somewhere. You can get very strong in certain areas, but there's always that point at which somebody can take you down. I mean, even with all their wisdom, with all their, their knowledge and understanding and political and influential power, they had just had a, mu a huge political shakeup in their country. They had a weak stick for a king who, who wouldn't defend his own people he, he really only had his own interest at heart, so these wise men had to depose their king. And right now, everybody in their country was looking at them, asking them, okay, so who's the new king gonna be? How are you gonna fix this? How are you gonna fix this massive political problem that we have? And I gotta be honest with you, I don't think they had an answer for that. Why was Jesus' arrival so huge to these guys? See, I don't think these wise men were that much different than you and I. I mean, these were, the, these were the guys to whom everybody came for an answer. Do you ever feel like that happens sometimes? People come to you for answers and sometimes you don't have the answers? I mean, I, I, I have people come to me and they wanna know why is my marriage falling apart? Why am I going through this? Why am I having to deal with this? And can I tell you what? There are not always quick and easy answers to give people. And I think what these guys were recognizing is, hey, guess what? There is a point at which we don't have answers anymore. And there was a key moment in the history of these wise men going back some years where they really faltered at a moment when they, when they should have had the answers. Do you remember back in the story of Daniel, back in the Old Testament, when the king had a dream and they set great store by dreams back then and he needed somebody to interpret his dream? Who did they call in to interpret his dream? Well, the magicians, the satraps, and the wise men, right? And none of them could interpret the dream. Here are the guys with the answers to everything. They know everything but they can't tell the king what his dream is. But Daniel comes in, and what does Daniel say? My God can give you the answer to your dream. My God's got your answers, the answers you're looking for. I don't have them, but my God does. I'll tell you what he says. And maybe I'm just writing way out there in the world of conjecture, but I'm kind of wondering, right, if these wise men pulled Daniel aside and said, hey, who is this God that you're talking about that gives you the answers to the questions no, none of us seem to have answers for? And Daniel was the prophet who, Daniel was one of the prophets who talked about Jesus coming to earth. It could have been that Daniel said, look, I want to tell you about my God. And I also want to tell you that he's going to send someone to earth to save us. 
Because see, here's what I'm thinking. I believe that the reason that the wise men actually made this long trip to go find Jesus is because I think there was a golden thread through the generations that hung in there that said, somebody's coming, somebody's coming, somebody's coming. And this person has all the answers. They know the, que- the answers to the questions that we don't know. And I think when the wise men saw that star come up, I think they said, it has happened, and I don't care what it takes, we're going to go see this guy. I want to read you what happened when, when, the star, when, when they saw that star. Verse 9, after this interview, the wise men went their way. This is after they talked to Herod. Now keep in mind, they saw the star, and they went to Jerusalem, because they figured in Jerusalem was where the new king would be born, because he's the king of the Jews. If they go to Jerusalem, they ask around and ask people where the king's born, obviously they're going to know where the king's born, because it's not like a small thing. Surely everybody there is going to know. But they go to Jerusalem, they ask everybody, and everybody says, we have no clue, right? So they're very depressed. And they get out, but as soon as they leave the interview, look at this, the star appears again and starts to lead them. The star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were filled with joy. There's our word. In this one moment, we have a glimpse into the emotions of these wise men. They were filled with joy. But what does that mean exactly? Because you know what? I don't know if you recognize this, but we don't talk about joy very much in our culture. I mean, we pull it out of mothballs for Christmas. You know how you pull out the big box of Christmas ornaments you have in the garage, your box or three or ten boxes you have you bring in, you unpack everything, and probably you have joy on about 50% of those Christmas ornaments or Christmas items, right? But we don't talk about joy an awful lot. You know, I, I, again, I was at the Black Friday sale. I didn't hear anybody say, oh, I hope my, you know, when I give my son this Xbox, I, I hope it fills his heart with great joy. No, what, what word did I hear over and over and over again at Black Friday? Happy, 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 happy. I hope it makes him happy. I, I got my daughter, I got my daughter this, this bike, and I hope, it, I hope it makes her very happy. You know, they're going to be so happy when they see this. See, the thing is, we like to talk about happiness. We don't talk much about joy, but we talk about happiness because happiness is a much more accessible emotion. Happiness is something we can, we, can, we can understand and we can grab onto. Why? Because we live in a culture that is all about instant gratification. It, has, it has, all has to be about now. If, if, if I need to find something out, Wikipedia. I'll get on the internet and find it out right now. It doesn't matter if it's true or not, who knows, but I'm going to get the information that I need right now, right? If I want to talk to somebody, I'm going to text them right now, you know? I, I, if I want coffee, I'm going to put my K-cup in the, in the instant coffee maker. I'm going to make it right now, right? Everything's got to be right now, right now, right now, right now, right now. And so when we're thinking about the emotions that we experience and, 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 and the, the feelings, the good feelings that we want to have on the inside, we want to have them now, and that's what happiness is all about. Happiness is all about good feelings now. But what's the difference between that and joy? Well, I want to talk about that, but what I'd like to do, and I think this would be a good way of sort of bookending this or bracketing this, I want to talk to you about the opposite of joy first, because that's what we see with King Herod. And I... I like to talk about King Herod because he was a nutcase. <laughs> he, he, was, he was just messed up. Uh, and in fact, you know, the guy was so, was so paranoid, he, he drowned his brother-in-law because he thought his brother-in-law was going to come try to take the kingship away from him, right? He did throw him a nice funeral, though, which I guess is nice. In fact, the historians even tell us he cried at the funeral that he threw for his brother-in-law that he drowned. So that's, that's good, too. But... In a, in a means to try to keep from losing his throne, he also had his wife killed. He had three of his sons killed. And in truth, all the, all the little boys that were born in Bethlehem, he had killed all in an attempt to try to save his throne. Why? Well, just because he, um, 
he didn't belong there. He didn't belong on the throne. He, he'd, he'd acquired the throne illegitimately. He called in a few favors, and he was sitting on a throne that didn't belong to him. And this is, this is the picture of insecurity. <laughs> when, when, when you're sitting on something that isn't really rightfully yours anyway, you begin to be insecure about what could happen if you lose it, right? And so this is the picture of an insecure person. What's interesting about Herod, and I, I, I didn't really know this until I started researching him, but Herod, is, he's an odd duck. I mean, one minute he's giving to the poor. I mean, he, and I think he probably was doing this to secure his political standing, but at a moment when the poor were, were, were destitute and, and had big problems, he decided to give back some tax money to the poor. It was unheard of, right? So one minute he's loving on people, the next minute he's killing them, right? Have you ever met somebody like this who's insecure? In one hand they're patting you on the back, in the other hand they're holding a bazooka, and you never know what to, what to think. You know, one minute they love you, the next minute they hate you. One minute they want you to come close, the next minute they wish you'd go live on the other side of the planet, right? This was Herod. He, he, he was unpredictable. He was, he was a scary person to be around. You just didn't know what was going to happen around Herod. He's pretty paranoid. So let me give you some context for what's going on here, Right? <laughs> You've got these kingmakers from the Orient, these guys who have the power to say who has power. These are the guys who have the power to make kings. And they show up in his place, right, in his city when he's the king and he doesn't really have a right to be king and he's paranoid about whether or not somebody's going to try to take his throne away from him. And they arrive. And by the way, you know, the folklore tells us there were three wise men. That's probably not accurate. We, we, you know, people have thought that over the years because there were three gifts. But in historical context, we believe there was a large group of wise men and probably a small army accompanying them. So this was not a small group of people. This was a very large group of people. And when they arrived in Jerusalem, they didn't just go and ask somebody, where is the new king of the Jews? That word in the, in the Greek means they were asking and asking and asking and asking and asking. Literally, they found anybody who would talk to them and said, hey, where's the new king of the Jews? Can you imagine what Herod was going through? I mean, this is not a happy time for him, right? Here are these people that are political enemies of his that have the power to make kings, and they're saying there is already a new king who's going to take his place. Let me show you what, what happened to Herod. This is Matthew 2, verse 3. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. That word there, the, 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 the Greek word for disturbed means violently shaken. Do you know what it's like on the inside to feel violently shaken when your stomach sort of turns on end and you start to feel that sense that nothing is right on the inside? I mean, he was violently shaken up on the inside. And it said that all Jerusalem was, was, was disturbed with him. And I, I don't kind of make a guess here, but I sort of think the reason that Jerusalem was disturbed with him is because they didn't know how Herod was going to respond, you know. Not, nothing like when, when you have somebody in your life who's a powder keg, right, and somebody delivers news that's not popular, you don't know what's going to happen. And I think that was kind of what happened with Jerusalem around Herod. You know, what's this guy going to do? You see, the reason that Herod was shaken up, the reason he was disturbed, because he'd always wanted to be king. He'd always wanted to have the position that he now has. He's worked very hard. He's called in a lot of favors. He's gotten where he wants to be. He has the way of life he's always dreamed of. And anything that threatens his way of life causes him to be violently shaken on the inside. I mean, he's finally got a three-car garage, a nice basement, lots of square feet. He's, he's finally got the car that he always felt he should have been able to drive a car like that. He's got the job he always wanted. You 
He's, life is good. Life is good for him. But, but he's not living a good life. He's living a paranoid life because anytime he feels like something's coming into his life to take away part of what he's worked so hard for, he's violently shaken. And I don't know if that, if that strikes a chord with you, but I know for me personally, there have been moments in my life where I feel like I've worked very hard to accomplish something and I've worked very hard to get something and I feel like I'm in jeopardy of losing that. And anytime something comes into my life that puts me on edge and I think, they're, I think I'm getting ready to lose something that I've really worked hard for, I'm violently shaken on the inside. It's like when you hear about the next round of layoffs that's coming and you leave work and you're violently shaken. When your spouse says something to you that makes you feel like the relationship is not where it should be and you're violently shaken on the inside. See, Herod shows us what the opposite of joy looks like. It's paranoia, it's fear, it's anxiety. And I think those things happen to us because anytime we become the guardians of our own future, we're setting ourselves up for failure and we know it. Anytime we become the person who guarantees what it is that we want, we know we're setting ourselves up for a letdown. I mean, Herod was so busy trying to keep his status that he missed the biggest message in the whole wide world, that, that somebody had come to rescue not only the rest of the world, but rescue him too. But he was so busy trying to, trying to protect his stack that he couldn't get the message. But the wise men reacted differently. When they saw the star that Jesus was born and that God was leading them to him, they reacted with joy. Why did they do that? Remember what I said a minute ago, that these were the guys who always were supposed to have the answers, and at pivotal moments, they didn't have the answers? See, here, here's the thing. I believe that why Herod was intimidated by these people coming was because anything that would threaten the way of life he had made him paranoid. But see, the wise men were different. They didn't, <laughs> the wise men believed that their way of life was not good enough. They weren't trying to hold on to their way of life. They were looking for a better way of life because the way of life they had fell short. There were answers they didn't have. There were questions they didn't have answers to. And, and that was bigger than what their position was, than what their status was, and all the things that they knew. Because at the end of the day, the most important thing was that there were answers to questions and that there was a secure future and that they could know what was going to happen. So I honestly believe that's why they had joys, because they, for them, this world was not enough. For, for, for Herod, this world was, everything in this world was enough, and he just wanted not to lose it. But for the wise men, it didn't matter, because the things in this world were not enough, and that's what joy is all about. I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel like there's a huge incongruity between what the things, the things that our ornaments say in our households and the things that are really going on in our houses. You know, I, I think immediately my mind goes to a, a dear friend of mine who passed this year unexpectedly. And I think about his family and precious wife as they experience Thanksgiving and Christmas with a very conspicuous absence. You know, sometimes the Christmas ornaments say joy and peace and we, we have these things around our house, but what's actually going on in our house and what's going on in our hearts doesn't match. And I think what's, what's difficult sometimes is we feel like this is, this, this can, this season can, the, the season of Christmas and the messages of Christmas can actually push us farther away from joy because we can think there is no joy in this season. There is no happiness. I, I experience sadness at this time. And that's why we're talking about the fact that happiness, I would agree with you. If Christmas was a time that was supposed to inspire happiness, if the Bible told us that Christmas was a time that was supposed to inspire happiness, I would tell you that the season is a crock because I know a lot of people who are unhappy. 
But see, let me tell you what happiness is. Happiness is a knee-jerk response to good circumstances. Happiness is not an informed emotion. It's not an intelligent emotion. It's not an inspired emotion. Happiness is just a response. It's just something that happens when circumstances are good. So if, 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 if happiness hinges on your circumstances, then if your circumstances change, then you're likely to be unhappy. If, 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 I need, if I need to be happy, then what that means is I need constant, consistent, good circumstances, and I know it's not gonna happen. That's why joy is a superior emotion. Let me, let me read this to you out of Romans 5, starting in verse six. This says, when we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will, future tense, certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So when, now, we can rejoice or be joyful in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. Do you see this? This is what joy is all about. Joy is all about the future. Joy is all about future tense. This is going to happen. This is what joy is all about. Joy is all about celebrating what is not happening yet because you know it will happen because God has said it will happen. That is what joy is. See, joy is, happiness is a flimsy emotion. It's easy to break, you know. Happiness is a five and, five and dime store toy. It, 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 it's destined to break. But joy, on the other hand, is very flexible. Have you ever noticed what happens when you, when you encounter a truly joyful person? They're unsinkable, you know. When life drags them in, in below the water, they always float back to the top, you know. They always see the opportunity and the challenge, you know. And you want to just lecture them and say, look, you don't know how bad it is that you have it. You know, you obviously missed some details here. You are struggling. I'm just telling you, you're really struggling, right? But they don't get it. They, like I said, they see the opportunity and the challenge. I don't know if you're like me. I'm a person who sees the challenge and the opportunity. Anytime some great opportunity comes my way, I, I would be a good risk evaluation expert because I can always see the danger before it happens. I can always see all the things that could go wrong. And I could give you a list of the things that could could go wrong. But there is a difference. See, a person who is joyful sees the opportunity inside the challenge. See, they're always seeing the angles. They're always seeing what, what good could come. And really, the term joy in the scriptures really is a term for gladness. And gladness is all about seeing the possibilities even when you're going through a difficult time. Joy is about celebrating what isn't happening yet because you know it will happen because God has said it will happen. See, happiness hinges on your circumstances, but joy hinges on promises. Let me read this to you out of Romans 5. We can rejoice too. By the way, that word rejoice means to say, nice to see you. We can, we can, basically it says, we can say, it's nice to see you when we run into what? Problems and trials. For we know that they help us develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character. And character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. Hope is about future tense. We're talking about our view of future realities. And this hope will not lead to disappointment, for we know how dearly God loves us because he's given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with love. Here's the thing. The Bible says the, this hope will not disappoint. Folks, at some point in time, finances in your life are going to disappoint you. Family members are going to disappoint you. You're going to go through a lot of disappointments in life, but the reason we can have joy because of the birth of Jesus Christ is because this is the one thing that you can count on that won't disappoint you never going to let you down. See, joy flourishes and probably even does the very best in difficult circumstances. And I say that 
Because I know in a room this size, I'm talking to a lot of people who are going through a very difficult season this Christmas. You're experiencing things that are really challenging you. They're they're pressuring you. They're making life difficult for you. And so here's what I would like to do. In In the minutes that I have left, I'd like to give you three things to hold on to this Christmas that are gonna help you in developing joy in your life. Three things straight out of the Bible that I hope will be very helpful for you as you think about this. The first first one is this. My problems are now working for me. So I don't have to maintenance my happiness by trying to eliminate every obstacle I face. My problems are working for me. You you ever feel sometimes that that, that, there's always trouble somewhere and you're always working working against all the challenges that you face. You're always working against the problems that you have. The Bible says, you know, your problems are working for you. Let me read this verse to you out of 2 Corinthians. For our present troubles are small and won't last very long, yet they produce for whom? For us. They produce for us. Some other translations say they work for us. A glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look, man, this is huge. We don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze. Remember we said, what is, what is joy about? Joy is about focusing on future realities. We fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen, the intangibles. For the things we see now will soon be gone. But the things we cannot see will last forever. Boy, I, I don't know about you, but I, I see a couple huge things in that verse, I mean, one thing is my problems are working for me. My problems are doing something for me. And the Bible says that, that, that God is, is, is allowing these things to, not, God isn't putting these things in our life, but he's allowing these things to develop for us a glory that the Bible says vastly outweighs the difficulties that we're experiencing. Hey, do you have big problems? Then great, you're gonna have big glory as a result. The Bible says as big as your problems are, the glory that those problems is creating for you is so much greater than what they are you can't even imagine, right? If, 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 if you have large size problems, right? The glory you're going to experience is like four extra large size from the big and tall store, right? God, God is saying there is huge glory on the back end of big problems. But it's not just that. There's a reason for that. I, I recall growing up that, uh, you know, as a pastor's son, and, and as is the case in, in pastor, it was a sm- much smaller church back then. And, um, when I was growing up, especially when I was younger, um, my, we didn't have a very large pastoral staff, and so... Um, when a church is smaller like that, the, the, the pastor's schedule is just crazy. You just never know, um, you know, when, when, when the pastor's going to be called away and need to do something. And so sometimes we would make plans to do something as a family, and those plans, those plans would kind of end up uh, having to be put on hold because dad would have to go be somewhere or do something. And, uh, but my dad had a phrase. He, he used to say, he'd say this. He'd say, you know what? I'll make it up to you. And you know what he did? And I knew that phrase, and that phrase is very special to me because I understood that what dad was saying is, look, we had these plans, but I'm gonna do something for you that's better than these plans since we had to put these plans on hold. And what God is saying is, look, I know you're going through some things, and some of the things you've lost can't be replaced. Some of the things that you've gone through, it's not like you're gonna see those things come back to you tomorrow, but God is gonna make it up to you. The Bible said you're gonna experience a, a glory that vastly outweighs what you've been through. Look at this in James 1, 2, and 3. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles come your way, consider it an opportunity for what? 
great joy. Consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. Now look at this. This is in James 1, 2, and 3. It says, when, when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. Just a second ago, I said in Romans 5, 3, the Bible says when we, when we encounter tr- troubles and problems, we can say, hey, nice to see you. Why? Because in that verse, it says it'll help us develop endurance. Well, there's a theme here, don't you think? In two different books of the Bible, the Bible's telling us that when we go through difficult times, we have an opportunity to develop endurance. Well, what does that mean? Well, well, well I, I talked with my Synergy group about this the other night, but I think, I think this is one way that I've been able to actually get my arms wrapped around this truth. When, whenever my wife and I were um, uh, uh, in Edmond, Oklahoma, we, we got a, a membership at the local YMCA, which is not too far from our house. And I don't know if you know this, but when you, when you get a membership of the YMCA, or at least back then, you get like these two, two sessions with somebody who's going to take you around and they're going to show you all the equipment and sort of set you up on a plan. They're not really a personal trainer, but they're sort of like it. And, uh, and, and that way you sort of know what to do when you go in and you work out, right? As you can tell, obviously, I've been keeping up with my workouts. And... Anyway, um, my wife went in. She had her sessions. It went fine, you know. And then I, I finally went in, and, and there she was, you know, Olga the Death Queen standing right there. My, my person who was going to help me understand the equipment and set, and, and set me up with a plan, you know. And I honestly believe, to this day, I really do believe that, that her primary goal was to make me be physically ill before I left that building that day, you know. I, 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 have, I still have muscle aches from, and that was years ago, I still have muscle aches from, from that day. I mean, it was very difficult. I, I honestly think she was trying to kill me, but that's, that's another point for another day. But in any case, you know, I, I, as I walked to my car after that whole workout, I was subhuman. I mean, I honestly think if the paramedics had come and taken my vitals and stuff, they probably would have found out I was legally dead because I, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't feel alive, right? I went home and iced everything, you know? And then I walked in the next time. There she is again, Olga the Death Queen, you know? And, and so what do I do? Well, I walk right up to her and punch her in the face, right? <laughs> I mean, after all, she put me through pain. I mean, you, you have no idea. You really, it was bad. You know, what, what, what am I supposed to do? I mean, after all, she's a difficult lady, you know. She's putting the hurt on me. No, what do I do? I walk in, I say, hey, it's good to see you, right? Why? Because I know what she's trying to do is in my best interest. She's trying to help me get fit. It's, it's all about me getting fit. I'm, 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 she's trying to help me strengthen myself, Right? And so when God, again, God doesn't put these problems in our life, but what God will do is he will let these problems be a personal trainer in our life that are going to help us develop endurance. And we're going to gain emotional and spiritual muscles we didn't even know we had before, but we're going to learn how to flex those muscles and we're going to do better. And so many of us know that some of the most difficult times we've been in, in, in our lives have helped us develop strength that we didn't have before. God is letting you, God, God is going to, when, when you go through this, God is going to let it help you develop endurance. Your problems are working for you. That's, that's the first thing. Man, and I've got to hurry. Here's the second thing. I know God is at work in the troubles that I face. There are few, few verses that have more personal significance to me than Romans 8, 28. It says, and we know that God causes how many things? everything, everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. Folks, wherever your biggest problem is, God is already there and he's working on it. If your problem is at work, if you're having difficult times at work, God is already at your workplace and he's working on it. If you're having problems in your home right now, 
God is there and he's working on it. If you're having financial difficulties right now, God is in that situation and he's working on it. God is working on it. He's working in those things. Now the thing about it is, his, the, way that, the way he works things out may not look right to you, but here's the thing. I, I don't even know what's in my best interest. I don't know what's for my good, but God does. And so I, I get to trust him and believe that he's working on the things that I'm experiencing trouble at. And what he's doing is he's working those details out for my good. Here's the third thing. I told you I was going to run quickly. The first thing was this, my problems are working for me. The second thing was I know God's at work in the troubles that I face. And here's the third thing. No problem, no problem I could ever face will ever, ever jeopardize my future. See, that's the thing about Herod. He was so scared something, something was going to happen and put his future in jeopardy. Something was going to happen to him and he'd lose everything. But can I tell you, if you are a God follower, if you have a relationship with God, you cannot lose your future. Let me read this verse to you out of Romans 8. What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If, if God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one. For God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us. And he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand pleading for us. Now here's the thing. Before I move on to the second part of this verse, we use the words condemn and judge and accuse. A lot of times we're just talking about how somebody, you know, we think about this in terms of the water cooler. When somebody says something, condemn, makes a condemning remark or an accusatory remark, this is not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about here is the kind of thing that happens if you're being prosecuted for a felony that could put you in jail for the rest of your life. That's the kind of thing that Paul's talking about here. He's saying, who dares prosecute you? Who dares pull you in front of the judge and, and say that you should go away for the rest of your life? Who, who dares try to condemn you? Who would try to separate you from God? Nobody, because Jesus Christ, who is God's son, has said, I'll vouch for that person. So he's saying, look, nobody can haul you up in front of anybody and accuse you about anything because Jesus Christ has said, nope, this person's okay, he's with me. And at that point, your future is secure. Let me, let me read the rest of the verse. So, can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? What a, what a huge question. Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble? or calamity, or persecuted, or hungry, or destitute, or in danger, or threatened with death? No. Despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither our, what a huge phrase, neither our fears for today, or our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below, indeed nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Did you know that the thing that you are most afraid of in your life can't separate you from God? I mean, if you're afraid that, that your finances are, are gonna just go nuts and you're gonna end up having nothing, you're going to end up having to deal with the pain of financial loss. Can I tell you, that, that is a big problem, but it certainly can't separate you from God. Are you afraid your spouse is going to walk away from you? That is a big concern, but can I tell you what? Even if your spouse walks away from you, God will never walk away from you. You can't lose your future with God. If you have a relationship with God, the thing in life you are most afraid of can't take that away from you. And that's the most important thing you have. 
So that's the thing about joy. Happiness is all about my present circumstances, but hope says, you know, or joy says, you know what? What I've got coming, nobody can take away from me. And even though I'm going through this right now, these things I'm going through, they're working for me and God's working in it. And I know I can't lose what's most important anyway. So I'm gonna have joy even though I'm going through difficult circumstances. You're gonna have to explain this to some people because you're gonna get out of this place and you're gonna start reevaluating reality in your life and you're gonna start being the unsinkable person that when life you know, drags you under the water, you're gonna float and people are gonna wonder what's going on with you and they're gonna wanna lecture you and tell you, I just don't think you know how bad you have it and you're gonna have to tell them, you know what? You don't even know what my reality is. My reality is something that, that, that is so huge, it really makes this look pretty small right now. I, I told you in the beginning that I like talking about Herod. I've always liked talking about Herod. He's, a, he's an odd duck, you know? Interesting guy. To be honest with you, I, I think I'd be pretty intimidated if I was in Herod's shoes too. And I know that because I've been there. I've been there. I've, I've been in a position where I felt like I was sitting on a stack of things that I had accumulated and I'm guarding it with my life to try to keep anybody from taking those things because if anybody comes close, I get violently shaken. But God has called me, and this is what's so huge about the Christmas season. When God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to earth, he didn't do it so I could be happy because happiness just hinges on my circumstances, but he sent Jesus Christ to earth so I could have joy, which is a much better emotion. Just for a moment, could you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? I sure recognize that in a room this size, there might be somebody who'd listen to what I've said this morning and say, you know what? Everything you said sounds really good, but I actually haven't met Jesus. I don't have a relationship with God, but you're talking about a future I can't lose and, and somebody who really cares about me, even what I'm going through. And I wanna have a relationship with God. Well, here's the deal. If that's where you're at this morning, why not settle it now? No better time to have a relationship with Christ than when we celebrate his son coming to earth. So here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna say the words to a very simple prayer. And if, if you wanna have a relationship with God, you can say this silently in your head to God. And if you do, it'll be settled this morning. You ready? Here we go. Dear Jesus, thank you that you love me. Thank you that you died for me. I know I do wrong things. I know I can't get to heaven on my own. Today, I accept your free gift of heaven and forgiveness. I believe in you, Jesus. 